Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. Before I get started, I want to do, give you one reminder, and that is that next week we're going to do communion. I told you I would remind you ahead of time. Communion, if you're with us in person, is going to look a little different. You're going to come in in the morning, and on your seat there will be a prepackaged communion cup and wafer all together. Uh, and that's, that's yours. It'll be put out by, with somebody with gloves, so it'll be clean. Just you can touch that. Uh, if you're with us online and you're at home next week, then we we'll invite you to be prepared with some sort of communion, whether that's the juice and a cracker or bread or whatever you want to do at home. But we want to invite you to join us in that as we take communion together as, as one community, whether we're here in person or we're gathering online. Well... When I first got married to my wife, we had hanging on the wall of our apartment a picture of Bob Marley. Uh, We both happened to enjoy Bob Marley's music, and I'm not sure where we were, but we came across a charcoal drawing of Bob Marley. It didn't say his name or anything like that. It really was just a picture of his face, and we hung it on our wall. And in our early days of youth ministry, youth would come over, and they'd want to know who that guy is. And so we just affectionately started telling him that that was Uncle Bob. So this morning, I'm gonna, I want to start out talking about Uncle Bob. Um, Bob Marley sang a song, and the lyrics went like this. One love, one heart. Let's get together and feel all right. Hear the children crying, one love. Hear the children crying, one heart. When Bob was at home, there were two political parties that were vying for his attention, his endorsement. Bob was a fairly popular musician. His words carried weight. People cared what he thought about. And certainly if he put those things in a song, people would remember it that much more. And so there were these two political parties with a great divide between them that that demanded his endorsement in some way, shape, or form. And these political parties, the divide continued to increase, and it eventually became violent even between them, where there there was riots, there were beatings, people got into physical altercations, and it became quite unsafe. Well, Bob has his own political opinions for sure, and if you've experienced any of his music, then you've experienced some of his political opinions. But in this particular instance, at this particular time in his life, he wanted to try and remain as neutral as possible. He wanted to provide a space that was safe for people to come to if they were stuck in these two warring factions. And specifically, there were children stuck in these two warring factions, whether it was because they heard the opinions expressed by their parents or because they adopted those opinions themselves, but it was often children that were actually fighting with one another. And so in his backyard at his house, he created what he called a neutral zone. I might call it a ceasefire, but he called it a neutral zone. And this was a place where you could come And it was a safe place. There wouldn't be any fighting. If you wanted to talk, you could talk. And sometimes the the, the talking got heated. It got a little argumentative, and Bob would have to rush out and, and break up a fight. But he so wanted to provide a third way 
See, either ignoring all that was happening or joining in with all of the the hate and the anger and the violence that was happening. In fact, he wanted so badly to do this non-political concert. Again, both parties want him to do an endorsement. Both parties would want him to do an endorsement at the concert that draws so many people to him. Endorse one of these parties, and he wants it to be non-political. And, and here's what, where I'm going. We're talking about risky love today. There's always going to be people that when you provide a third way, when you provide a way of love, who are going to try and stop you. For Bob, that was masked gunmen who entered his house and started shooting their guns everywhere. His fellow musicians running and diving into bathtubs as their instruments were shot up. Bob getting shot himself in the stomach, but luckily not the heart as somebody else knocked him down. There's always going to be people who wanna stop you from showing a way of love. There's always going to be a risk associated with showing a way of love. We are doing this series on ceasefire very much to provide that sort of neutral ground, very much to provide a safe place where despite all that goes on outside of this building or outside of the the living room you sit in, outside of the service that you're watching online right now, that you can know that this is a place of love. That when you come here, doesn't matter if you have this opinion or this opinion, we love you because you're you. We love you because God first loved us. And because we know what that's like, we cannot help but love you. And I want you to be aware of that. It's so easy for us to get caught up and get stuck in paying attention to the things that separate us. There's a man named... um, Julian Maha, and he was giving a a speech. It's called a TED Talk. If you know what a TED Talk is, then you can kind of picture that. If you don't know what a TED Talk is, you can just think of it as a speech. And he opened with these words. He said, we look different, we sound different, and we even perceive the world in different ways. But at the core of our being, we all seek the same thing. We seek acceptance, we seek inclusion, and we seek community. We look different. We sound different. But we all want, deep down, the same thing. Julian Maha was actually talking about his autistic son. He was talking about people who have special needs. And there's so many people out there who have special needs that, well, if if you just looked at them, you would have no idea that there was anything going on. And that's what his speech was about, but his words ring so true even today, right? We all look different, we talk different, but deep down, we want community, we want to be included. And I was listening to this TED Talk, and he, he's talking about including those with disabilities. It made me think back to my time at, at Kenbrook, and for those of you who don't know, Kenbrook is a, is a Bible camp and a conference center, and uh, it has about 100 acres of property. You know, we had a number of children that would come through who would have been dealing with some sort of disability, often physical, and we should be an ADA-compliant facility. An ADA, American Disabilities Act, that really is talking about making sure your doors are wide enough so someone with a wheelchair can get through. It's talking about making sure that if your building only has steps to get in, that you provide a ramp so that anybody can get into the building. Um, Being ADA compliant is a good first step 
because it gets you in the space. At a place like Kembrook, we can say, oh yeah, we have ADA compliant cabins with ramps that go into them. Uh, yes, we have, a, we have an elevator in our building so you can get from the first floor to the second floor. Um, we, we can say that we're ADA compliant, but for a place like Kembrook, it has to go far beyond that because we have 100 acres on the grounds where most of our programming takes place, where so much of our activities take place. It's very physical. We run around, we do a lot of games. And so if we had somebody coming who had some sort of a physical disability, being ADA compliant is really just the first step. So much of us, when we encounter scripture, when we encounter the word of God, we kind of look at it like being ADA compliant. Like, what's the bare minimum I can do to make sure that I'm legal, right? Making sure that my doors are wide enough and making sure there's a ramp to the building is the bare minimum that I can do to make sure that a physically disabled camper can participate. But what we need to do is move beyond being legal and embrace the individual. I think back to my time as a summer staffer in the early 2000s, and there was a, there was a young man named Tony. And I don't remember what Tony's... Um, official diagnosis was, but I know that he was in a wheelchair most of the time. He didn't have very good use of his legs. Well, again, having a cabin that he can get into, having a ramp to get him into the buildings, an elevator from the first floor to the second floor, that's a good start. But if we're going to play games, like a tag game, how do we get Tony involved in that? If we're going to do a special campfire a quarter of a mile out into the woods, how is Tony going to get there in his wheelchair? So then it becomes about embracing Tony as a person and realizing he is far beyond a disability. We need to make sure that we have an extra staff member assigned to Tony who also has access to a golf cart to make sure that we can transport him where we need to. We need to make sure that when we're planning our games this week, because we know Tony's coming, let's go light on the tag games. Let's play some other games where he might actually be able to participate in those things. Let's do some activities that way. We embrace the person. And in fact, when Tony was there, I'll never forget this. Tony wanted to climb our climbing wall. Our climbing wall is 45 feet tall. It's got rock holds all over it. You climb to the top and you smack a board at the top to show that you got there. And Tony, for the years he'd been coming to camp, had seen other kids do this. But Tony had never done it. Not anywhere he'd ever been, he'd never gone climbing, but he wanted so badly to do it. So it became up to us. How in the world are we gonna make this a good experience for him? Well, let's find a harness that just in case he were to flip upside down, it grabs him up here so that he's safe. Let's make sure we get the, the three strongest guy counselors to come out and be on the belay rope so that if he's having trouble or he gets so far and can go no further, we can help him along by pulling on that rope. Let's make sure he gets to the top. Let's make sure that this is an experience that he will never forget. And then after doing all of the work to make sure it's all set up, we get Tony onto the wall and we watched with our mouths agape, we watched cheering as loudly as we could as we saw this kid using nothing but his arms climb up a 45-foot wall to slap that board at the top by himself with no help. Tony was embraced as a person. We were not simply trying to be compliant. It wasn't about how little can we do and still achieve it. It was about how much can we do to make sure that this is an experience that he is never going to forget. Tony is going to go home, and for the rest of his life, he's going to remember the day that he climbed to the top of that tower. 
when we embrace the gospel message, it should not be one where we're simply trying to be compliant. We're called into something much more than that. When we try to love the people around us, we're not called to simply sing some words in a song that talk about love. We are called to go far beyond that and embrace the individual. And that's what I want to talk about today. We're not quite as unified as we like to think. And even when we go back through history, we're not quite as unified as we like to think. We have all these letters in scripture to places like Colossae or Corinth, or we have in Acts, Paul travels to Athens. We have all of these Greek city-states that existed. And I think one of the things that I recently learned that I did not realize was that um, we kind of think of Greece as a country today because that's what it is. And we live in a, in a country that is unified. We're the United States of America. But back in biblical times, all of these different city-states had their own laws, their own kings, their own gods. And they would often go to war with each other. Just because they were all Greek didn't mean that they didn't go to war. Be like, be like if we had a border skirmish with Maryland. And then West Virginia does something that we both don't like, so we both team up and have a little skirmish with West Virginia. Like, that's the way that these city-states operated. They operated that way in war. They operated that way with their gods, with their religion, with their laws. You did it this way here, you did it that way there. The thing that unites them, finally, into one unified body is a rival empire coming in and attacking them. It takes an enemy. It takes the threat of death. It takes the threat of, of persecution, of having your land taken away, having your children sold into slavery, and finally the Greeks, they put aside the politics that separate them. They put aside the kings that separate them and the laws that separate them and they become one army, in this case, to fend off the Persian Empire. And I'm left with a question today as I consider the world that we live in. Is it possible for us today to be unified without having some sort of a great big enemy? Can we be united, not by the thing we both hate, but by the things we love? Is that possible? And maybe I'm idealistic. Maybe I'm optimistic. But I want to believe that followers of Jesus can choose to be united in the things that we love rather than the things that divide us. But we tend to focus on our differences. As people, in general, that is what we focus on, right? We focus on what separates us. And so this week we're talking about tribalism. That's what tribalism is. Tribalism is simply focusing on the things that separate you. I used a picture of, of blues and white people, blue and white. They're different. And we focus on the thing that separates us and there becomes a line right down the middle. Makes me think about the Good Samaritan. Quite honestly, ever since Thomas preached on the Good Samaritan, I haven't been able to stop thinking about the Good Samaritan. And I, I'm not, Thomas preached that already. I'm not going to preach that. But I want to talk about the conversation that leads up to the Good Samaritan, to the parable that Jesus tells. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10. If you don't, we'll have it on the screen for you. But there's a conversation that leads up to the parable that I think is really important for us to just highlight once again. 
And so I'm starting in Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered this correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? A religious leader, an expert in the law. We've spent time talking about what the law is, what the Torah is in this series. And that would be the first five books of the Bible. An expert in the law would have memorized it word for word. They could not be a teacher. They could not be a Pharisee. They could not be known as an expert in the law if they didn't have it memorized word for word. So I want you to think about the first five books of the Bible. I want you to think about all the memory verses you did when you were at vacation Bible school. Can you imagine whole books of the Bible being memorized? And then when a question is asked of you, you can kind of file through it all and find the right part of that book and use it to teach. That's what it took to be an expert in the law. And so it's one of these individuals that comes up to Jesus and asks him this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, Jesus responds and says, well, what does the law tell you? The thing that you're an expert in, the thing that you have memorized, the thing that we have access to, what does the law tell you? And so in Leviticus 19, in a book of the law, and we talked about how God gave the law to Moses who gave it to the Israelite people. Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a new thing. When Jesus talks about that, it's not new. That is something that was, has been there since the beginning. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, initially, when Moses gives this command to the Israelite people from God, they would have understood neighbor to be a pretty exclusive term. When you are wandering in the desert after you have left the captivity of slavery, your neighbor is literally the person who pitches their tent right here or right here. That is your neighbor. When the Israelite people stop wandering and they finally begin to develop a, a country, a city, your neighbor is the other Israelites who are with you in that city. Love your neighbor means loving people who look like you and sound like you and, well, they're part of your crowd. That's how neighbor would have been understood. It was an exclusive term. So when the religious leader comes up to Jesus and he asks this question and he gives the right answer, he then says, well, who is my neighbor? And when he says, who is my neighbor, he is... He's asking Jesus to define the line. Who's in, who's out? Who am I stuck loving? I mean, I know we're supposed to love our neighbor, all right? Who am I stuck having to love? Jesus, tell me where the line is so I don't go the extra mile, so I don't go loving people that I don't have to love. Tell me it's at the edge of the, of the people who are like me, just other Jews, right? Those people who aren't Jews, they don't talk like me, they don't look like me, they don't sound like me, they don't dress like me, they don't have the same beliefs as me. I don't have to love them, right? Because they're not my neighbor. Tell me that that's where the boundary is, Jesus. 
You know, the Jews at the time had a whole lot of people out there who would have fallen into the category of not my neighbor. I can even see, you know, if they had buggies and bumper stickers, I could even see some not my neighbor bumper stickers or baseball hats. Not my neighbor. Think about the people who would have been around in that time. Think about the Romans. The Romans were oppressors. They were violent. They forced the Jews to do things that they didn't want them to do, but by law they had to do. When Jesus is talking about if somebody tells you to carry their their bag for one mile, carry it for two miles, that's because there was a law that said a Roman soldier could stop you, a Jew, at any time in the middle of your day, no matter what you're doing. In the middle of work, you're in the middle of playing with your kids, you're in the middle of going somewhere, they can force you to carry their stuff, their armor, their swords, their luggage for a mile, anytime, anywhere. And Jesus says, well, if they do that, carry it for two miles. They won't even know what to do with that. It'll boggle their mind. They'll be so surprised. You'll be loving them in a way that nobody loves them. So the Romans could do things to them that they didn't want to be done. Plus, any time the Jews ever revolted or had a rebellion, who was it that stopped it? But the Romans. Who put them down? But the Romans. Who would crucify the leaders of the Jews that got too powerful, the Romans. Who would go on to crucify Jesus himself but the Romans? So the Romans would definitely fall into the category of not my neighbor. But you know who else would easily fall into that category? Is the Samaritans. Samaritans are from a neighboring country. At one point in history, the Jews and the Samaritans were one people. But the Samaritans were taken captive they theologically went a different direction. They, they weren't big fans of the temple in Jerusalem. They believed the appropriate place to worship God is on this mountain where Moses told them to go. But they have a shared history. They're very much the same people. But when they were captured, they had children with their oppressors. And then the Jews began to call them things like half-breeds, mixed. They hated them. To the point that in the story, when Jesus tells this parable, he introduces the Samaritan as the despised Samaritan, the hated Samaritan. The Jews did not like the Samaritans. So in the list of those people who would not be my neighbor, Samaritans would definitely go. And when you come across a rabbi like Jesus who is preaching things like, love your enemy, you gotta know where the line is. I mean, he's not just saying, love the people who look like me, love your neighbor. He's out there saying, love your enemy. Love your enemy? Do good to those who persecute you? Come on, you can't be serious, Jesus. Where is the line? Tell me where the line is so that I don't have to love more than I, than I really can, Jesus. Where is the line? It sort of takes us back to the beginning. The beginning of the year, we started in a series about Abraham. And in that series, at the very beginning, when God first called Abraham, we read that the goal was, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. See, God always had this plan to bless beyond just his people. Always. 
He calls, in, in, uh, in Exodus and Hosea, he calls the Israelites, the Jews, the Hebrews, he says, these are my firstborn. If they're your only born, you don't have to say they're your firstborn, right? There's always a plan that there's going to be others added into this flock, added into this family. The story of the rest of the Old Testament is littered with prophets calling Israel to share their light with the rest of the world. I'm going to read from Isaiah 49, verse 6. I love, by the way, Alicia's uh, devotional because one of the things she said was like, sometimes God's plan is so much better and bigger than what we can see, right? The prophet, on behalf of God, says this to his people. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. You see that? Like, what they thought was, okay, uh, I'll be God's servant. I'm going to restore the tribe of Jacob and, and bring back those of Israel that have been left out. All of that is people who are already in. All of that is people who are already a part of the family. All of that is people who are part of God's chosen people. And God says, it is too small a thing for that to be the whole picture. He goes on, I will make you a light to the Gentiles. Gentiles is just a word that means non-Jewish. That's everyone else. I will make you a light to the rest of the world. Of course, this all translates into the New Testament. It absolutely easily does. Paul writes in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. A righteousness that is by faith, not tribe. By faith, not skin color. By faith, not spoken language, not political party, not by having the right blood, not by wearing the right clothes, not by having the right kind of baptism or going to the right denomination. By faith. We are unified by faith. This has always been the plan. This has always been God's picture of of who is his people, who is his family. He wanted to reach all. And in order to reach all, he chose a group of people who would know him by name, who could reach out to the world around him. Let me make this just really clear. He chose a group of people that knew him by name. You know him by name. God has chosen you to carry his word everywhere you go. The Gentiles are those who do not know God. You are people that know his name and carry that message to the Gentiles. You have inherited the plan that was from the very beginning. You are to be a light into this world that all who do not know God would come to know God because of the light that you shine forth, because of the light that shines through you. So when this man asks Jesus, who is my neighbor, 
because he wants to justify himself, he knows it is common for us to define neighbor by people who are similar to us. People who are the same color or, or have the same language or have the same political beliefs or the same theological understandings or come from the same country of origin. We have all sorts of ways that we divide up the world around us and say, well, you are like me and you're my neighbor and you aren't and I don't have to worry about you. And that's essentially what the man's looking for. He says, Jesus, show me the line. Who, who's over there that I don't have to worry about? Who is right here that I have to worry about? And Jesus' answer pushes us beyond who it's natural for us to love. He pushes us to be supernatural in our love. Because in the story, when a Jewish man is robbed, beaten, and left for dead, it's the enemy, the sworn enemy of the Jew. It's the despised and hated Samaritan who stops and lends him aid who cares for his wounds. Pastor Bruxy Cavey puts it this way. Jesus doesn't just stretch the definition of neighbor to include outcasts, but he makes an outcast the hero of the story. And here's something I never noticed before. You notice at the end, Jesus ends it with a question. He doesn't tell the man who the neighbor is. He looks at the man after telling the parable and he says, so who do you say was his neighbor? And of course, this religious leader, this man who has memorized the Torah, who has a good grasp of the law, who is grown up Jewish, who hates the Samaritans, cannot even begin to bring himself to say, oh, the Samaritan was his neighbor. No, no, no. Instead, he says, well, I suppose it was the one who showed him mercy. The hatred runs deep. And Jesus looks at the man. He says, now go and do likewise. Go and love the people around you like your enemy has done such a good job of loving. He doesn't lift up the religious leader. He doesn't lift up the Pharisee. He doesn't lift up some other Jewish person to say, here's your example he takes someone who was their enemy, someone they can't imagine ever grasping who God might be, and lifts them up to say, this is what it should look like when you love those around you. When you want to know who your neighbor is, when you want to know who, who is in and who is out, it's somebody that you don't want it to be. It's somebody that you don't want to look like. You'll do everything you can to make sure as a Jew that you don't associate with Samaritans. You don't talk to them. You don't dress like them. You don't, you don't uh, share thoughts with them. In fact, they go to war all the time. But that's who the example is. Go and do likewise. Look, the way of Jesus is the way of risky love. I don't want to just sit in church and sing a bunch of songs about love. That's not good enough. And I love singing to God, and I love the songs that we sing. But if that is where it stops, folks, we have missed the mark beyond belief if it never gets past that. The way of Jesus is risky love. I, think about this. 
The story that Jesus tells about the Samaritan, it takes place on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. It is one of the most dangerous roads there is. People get beaten up and killed and robbed there all the time. And this Samaritan who stops to help this man could have easily been falling into a trap. That man could have been lying there pretending and as soon as he came over, gets up and robs and beats and kills him. Risky love demands that though there is risk to us, we still choose to love. That though someone might get up and stab us in the back, we still choose to love. When Jesus says, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you, he was not joking. He wasn't saying show up at church on Sunday and sing a bunch of songs about love and you're good to go, you're golden. He was saying, seriously go into the world and love those who don't love you. Love those who don't look like you. Love those who don't agree with you. Love God and love your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor, then you are loving God. But if you cannot love your brother, then there's no way you can love God. Jesus is the God of love. I would be remiss, I would be making a huge mistake if I didn't talk about love on a regular basis. I'd be making a huge mistake if I didn't say, folks, we can do better. Just because they don't agree, just because they don't look like us or talk like us or agree with us doesn't mean that we can't love one another. We, we are people who follow the God of love. And loving people could cost us everything. Absolutely. You can choose today, right now, this afternoon, tomorrow morning when you wake up and you start, you can choose to see all that divides you from everyone else. You can choose to be focused on the things that you don't agree with, on the things that upset you. That can be your focus. Or you can focus on something else. You know, the two Jews who walked by the man who was lying, broken, and bleeding, all they saw was problems. All they saw was, what if somebody sees me help this man and I'm suddenly ceremonially unclean? What if someone catches me touching a dead man and then I have to go through all this ritual stuff to make sure I'm clean? All they saw was problems. All they saw was the chasm that stood between them. All they saw was the line of, that's not really my neighbor because God would call me to stay clean and not help this person out. All they saw was the line. Or what if they're a decoy? What if I stop and they stab me in the back? And you can do that too. You can focus on pain and loss, despair, depression, anxiety, worry, fear, judgment. You can focus on political separation and pandemic stuff. Or... We can be a people that show the world something completely different. To focus on pain and loss and anxiety, to focus on political divide and pandemic separation, trust me, my friends, we don't need to add to that. There's plenty of that out there. That's, that's everywhere. Throw a stone and you hit 10 things, they're gonna show you how you're different than the people around you and how you don't agree with them and how they're against you and how you should fight. Or, like Julian Maha, when he talks about his autistic son, says, we look different, we sound different, 
But deep down, we want the same thing. Deep down, we want community. Deep down, we want to be cared for. Or like Bob Marley, despite the divide, we could create a neutral zone in our backyard where children can come and be safe. Where children can say things like, one heart and one love. This is what binds us together. Or like Jesus, we can choose not to focus on the difference between a Jew and a Samaritan. Not to focus on the fact that the Samaritans killed us and we killed them. To focus on the fact that they worship in a completely different place than where we do. Instead, focus on risky love, which is what unites us together as one anyway. Alan Culpepper says this, and then we'll close. To love God with all one's heart and one's neighbor as oneself meant then and now that one must often reject society's rules in favor of codes of the kingdom. The kingdom is a society without distinctions and boundaries between its members. And the rules of this society, this kingdom society, are just two, to love God and one's neighbor. But these rules are so radically different from those of the society in which we live that by living them, Sometimes we're called to disregard all else, to break the rules, and to follow Jesus' example. When the world calls you to something different than Jesus does, we must follow Jesus. When the example of the rest of the world is something that is antithetical, that is completely against, that goes in the opposite direction of what Jesus calls us to, we must choose Jesus. And so if the world calls us to be angry and the world calls us to hate and the world calls us to just take that divide and push it further apart until we are less and less in common with one another, then we must choose the way of Jesus because the way of Jesus is love. It's risky love. And it means loving people who don't have the same opinion as you and though they might say terrible things about you. It means loving people that don't sound like you and look like you. I've said it all before. And it might cost you everything. But this is the way of Jesus. I want to close with two scriptures. James chapter 2. If we can get that on the screen. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And finally, John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commands. That's a command of love. Love God and love your neighbor. May we go and do that. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.